0: Good morning, my friends, or whatever time of day it is for you. I'm Jared Halverson. this is Unshaken, and I want to start today with a question. What is your least favorite book of Scripture? Now, hopefully, it's not the Doctrine and Covenants. I know some of you felt that way at the beginning of the year. Hopefully, six months into it, uh, you're, you're feeling a little bit better about this incredible Scripture. But I want you to think about specific books of Scripture, particularly within the Bible. I've sometimes asked my Institute students, what are the three most hated books of the Bible? And they'll sit there and think for a while, and they'll usually come up with at least two of them. Number one is typically easy. they say, oh, Isaiah. Like, yeah, that's one of the most hated books of the Bible. So hard to understand. You probably heard the old joke about the missionary that got shot, and the Book of Mormon saved their life, because the, not even the bullet could penetrate the Isaiah chapters in 2 Nephi. Yes, urban legend. But it, but it does make a pretty good point. Uh, those are difficult chapters to plow your way through, and to make sense of. So there's one. A uh, second, and I don't know if there's an order here, but the second most hated book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. All those beasts with horns and eyes and wings and the dragon and a, a harlot, and it's just really confusing. And third, this is where they usually uh, get confused. There's a lot of possibilities there. Uh, but typically, the third, one of the three most hated books of the Bible is Leviticus. I've heard some people pronounce it, leave it, you cuss. Like, just leave that thing alone, don't touch it. Yeah, but those, those three books, people have a really hard time understanding. And this is where it leads to the next question. I'll then ask my, my institute students, do you know what the three most symbolic books of the Bible are? And you guessed it, Isaiah, Revelation, and Leviticus. I suppose you could include some of Ezekiel and some of Daniel and Zechariah. There's, there's symbolism throughout the, the Bible. But especially those big three, which tells me something. If those three are the three most hated and the three most symbolic, we must not like symbolism. And that's unfortunate when it comes to our scripture study. It's tragic when it comes to our temple worship, since the temple is the most symbolic site in the church. It has the most symbolic teaching, the endowment. And to me, it's a tragedy if we turn away from the temple because the symbolism of the endowment can be confusing. I think it's we that need to to get up to speed on this. The, because symbolism... Well, let me put it this way. If pictures are worth a thousand words, a symbol is worth a thousand lessons. And just layer after layer that you're peeling away. No wonder we can go to the temple our entire lives and still be learning new things and, and receiving new insights 50 years into it. The same is true of the symbolism that we find in Scripture. But it does beg questions. Because it isn't straightforward. Because it isn't literal. We, we wonder, what do you mean by that? And that's exactly what's going on when we get to section 77 of the Doctrine and Covenants. This is, a, this is a fascinating revelation. Because it's, I mean, even if you look at it, it looks different on the page because each verse has a Q and an A. And that's what this section is. It's Q&A, questions and answers, about the book of Revelation. We'll get a chance to do some Q&A with the book of Isaiah later on when we get to section 113. There's no Q&A about Leviticus, so maybe even that was was beyond what, what the early saints wanted to understand. But the fact they wanted to understand this is so important. An old student of mine once said that his mission president told him as a missionary that if your investigators never ask you a single question, then they're not really investigators. When he told me that, I thought, whoa, that explains a lot of dates that I went on when I was young. Uh, If they never ask you a single question about yourself, they're not that interested. Move on. But the fact that someone's asking you a question about the gospel, they're interested. That They want to know more. And I love the fact that the saints here are asking the Lord, through the prophet Joseph, about the book of Revelation. At Institute, I have taught courses on the book of Revelation where we take like a chapter a week and just spend the entire semester just on the book of Revelation. It's an incredible book of scripture, but it definitely you know, piques our curiosity. And that's exactly what symbolism is meant to do, to get us to think and then to think some more. If, to me, section 77, I mean, what is it, 15 verses? So 15 questions that they asked about the book of Revelation and 15 answers they got in return. But even more than the specific answers, and yes, we'll go through them all one by one, is the fact that they were asking questions and receiving answers at all. I hope that you know and feel that you can follow this same example. That in your scripture study, if you're confused, ask. Now it may not come as clearly as a a big Q and a big A in the middle of the scriptures. But hopefully our scripture study is a conversation of sorts. A conversation with the text and with the Lord. And one that's filled with questions to show our interest. I do have a testimony that answers come. Whether that's on the personal level or for the entire church like we see in this revelation. So it's okay to ask. It's okay to wonder. It's okay to be confused. The fact that even Joseph is asking these questions about the book of Revelation is a good sign. Even they need some divine help to make sense of scripture. Now, section 77, verse 1, the first question arises from chapter 4. And it's about one of the symbols that John sees there. What is the sea of glass spoken of by John, 4th chapter and 6th verse of the Revelation? And the Lord's answer? It's like, oh, that's an easy one. It says, it is the earth in its sanctified, immortal, and eternal state. Now, the fact that these questions would begin with Revelation chapter 4 doesn't surprise me much. Revelation 1 is very symbolic. Uh, John has the, begins this vision where he sees the Lord uh, and seven uh, stars in his right hand. He's in the midst of seven golden candlesticks. Uh, oh, okay, we're starting to get symbolic already. But the Lord does explain those symbols at the end of the chapter. The seven stars are the servants, the leaders of those seven churches, and the seven golden candlesticks are those churches. I am in the midst of my church. My leaders are in my right hand. That must have been incredibly comforting for the saints at the end of the first century. Well, the, the saints in every century, for that matter. The Lord is with us. Chapter 2 and 3 then follow, and those are, are beautifully symbolic, but they seem more, well, they're more specifically directed at the seven churches themselves. Each one receiving a message from the Lord with praise and and condemnation, depending on how well or poorly they were living the gospel. But the heavenly visions, beyond that first vision of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, begin in Revelation chapter 4. And it shows God on his throne. Before him is this sea of glass. That's what Joseph's asking about in verse 1. There are four beasts, very strange beasts, that Joseph's going to ask about also. And then there are 24 elders that are surrounding the throne of God also. And that's another question that Joseph has. The first five verses of section 77 all revolve around that, that throne room scene from Revelation chapter 4. And I'll come back to the significance of that once we, once we finish these first five questions and answers. But this first one what's that sea of glass? Now, the Lord's answer is straightforward oh, that, that's the earth. So picture the earth being before the throne of God, that he sees us, that he is aware of all that takes place here. Now some, I've heard over the years, take this verse far too literally and think, well, a sea of glass? No mountains? I mean, sure, great water skiing in the celestial kingdom, uh, this earth in its sanctified state. Water skiing on a sea of glass sounds pretty good to me. But no mountains? What a bummer. Well, I guess I'll enjoy them while I have them in this life. Now, again, don't take everything you read in the book of Revelation literally. That was the problem among many of the Jews in Jesus' day. They took everything too literally. When Jesus tells Nicodemus that a man must be born again, Nicodemus is like, whoa, my mom's not going to like that. And (laughs) Jesus is like, are you serious? Whoa. Symbolically, my friend, born of water and of the Spirit, baptism, Holy Ghost, wow, we got some work to do. Or the woman at the well, you need to... Drink the water that I give you, and it'll it'll you'll never thirst again. And she's like, sweet, this saved me so much work at this well. She's like, no, 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 it's symbolic. The the living water is the words of life. Or the apostles when they get back, and they they have food for him. He says, oh, I have meat to eat that you know not of. And they're like, wait, what? Where, where'd you get food? And he's like, my meat is to do the will of my Father who sent me. Never mind. We kind of miss the boat if we take everything too literally. And we'll see the Lord helping them with that in, in some of these questions and answers that they get about Revelation. So when we think sea of glass, what is he trying to get across? Now the earth, we see this in the, in the 10th article of faith, that the earth will someday receive it will be renewed and receive its paradisical glory. That the, this celestialized earth will be the celestial kingdom. And when it's in its sanctified, cleansed, immortal, it will never die again, mm-hmm. And eternal, this is where we'll be forever. What is it like? Well, symbolically, it's like a sea of glass. Now, what does that mean? Well, Joseph actually received some additional insight on this when we get to section 130, which also tells us something, that not the entire understanding, not all the answers come in a single session. So keep asking, keep pondering, keep thinking about these things. Keep going back to the temple and getting more insight every time that you go. And in that later revelation, this is what the Lord says. This earth, in its sanctified and immortal state, so it sounds like section 77, verse 1, will be made like unto crystal, and will be a Urim and Thummim to the inhabitants who dwell thereon. So we're getting line upon line here. The earth in its sanctified, immortal, eternal state will be like a sea of glass. Another way to say that, Well, like, it'll be like crystal. Another way to say that, it'll be like a Urim and Thummim. Oh, now we're getting somewhere. The Urim and Thummim was included in, in Aaron's high priestly robes to aid in revelation. When Joseph was given the Urim and Thummim, included with the, the golden plates, it was to help him understand things he couldn't understand in any other way. Urim, Urim, Vatumim, means lights and perfections in Hebrew. It's actually on the insignia of Yale University. It's so cool. It shows an open book with Urim Vatumim in it. That's what the Puritans were hoping that their college would be able to give to their students. An understanding of divine truth. To fill them with light. And not just any light, perfect light. Lights and perfections. Well, imagine not just... Uh, holding a Urim and Thummim. Imagine living on one. Imagine the earth itself in a celestialized state being a place of such purity. Glass and crystal suggest that. Such transparency both suggest that as well, that all things can be known. Remember last week when we discussed the celestial kingdom and one of the blessings of those who are there is that they see as they are seen. They know as they are known. There's nothing to hide behind and no need to, since we have all been washed clean through the just men made perfect, through the perfect atonement of Jesus Christ. Remember that beautiful verse? In fact, for to those who are, are, are lamenting the, the possible loss of mountains, and again, that's, you're being too literal there, but those who are lamenting that, think about what Alma the Younger said about mountains that the unrepentant will be calling upon the mountains to come and cover them from the all-seeing eye of God. Well, no wonder the celestial earth will be a sea of glass. No need for mountains to cover us from God's eye. He sees us, and there's nothing for him to flinch at or to blink about. We see ourselves, and we've finally gotten to a point where we can completely forgive ourselves knowing that God has completely forgiven us first. A sea of glass? Yeah, Maybe back to the, to the water skiing thought. That level of calm, of peace. Those who suffer from mental illness, for example, whose, whose sea always seems to be a turbulent one. Can you imagine the Lord, the master of ocean and, and earth and skies, saying to your troubled waters, Peace, be still. Oh, I long for that day, especially as I think of loved ones for whom their earth is never a sea of glass, but rather a tempestuous sea. That's what the Lord is is promising us. Even the word crystal, in terms of something crystallizing, it all comes together into, into this solid form. I love that thought too about the, the, the earth itself being a giant Urim and Thummim where thoughts and truths and realities all crystallize. Things that didn't make sense to you before finally will. And not just on the big picture theological things, but on the, on the private and personal. Can you imagine looking at your life as it begins to crystallize with the help of God and you begin to understand why life was the way it was for you? No wonder we'll know as we're known. Because God's known that all along. Now I want to add one more thing here. This was a new insight that came to me as I was pondering this sea of glass in preparation for today's lesson. Which again is the beauty of symbolism. Another layer that I'd never considered before. I thought about this idea of glass and how it's formed. And as I thought about sand being melted down and coming together to form this transparent glass. That, that, that's incredible. The sand, that, that, that's not see-through. But it becomes see-through, it becomes transparent when it's melted and all, and all forged together. And once I started thinking about sand, see, this is kind of what you do with symbolism. You think about the, the symbol that's being used and then you think about everything you know about the symbol. And then you start sifting through all that to see, do any of those things teach me lessons? You see, symbolism typically isn't meant to teach you something brand new that you've never heard before because that would be too ambiguous. It's, it's, there's too much potential confusion there. So don't look for symbolism to teach you brand new doctrine. Look for it to confirm doctrine you already know, but to make that doctrine more meaningful. You see, you see more insight into it. You appreciate it more. That's the beauty of symbolism. And so as I thought about glass and connected that back to sand. And then I started thinking about scriptures about sand and realizing that, oh, sand is often used as a symbol for people, that Abraham would have posterity as the sands of the seashore. And then it, it clicked to think, you know, just this is one of many possible uh, insights here, that when the earth in its sanctified celestial state becomes this sea of glass... Imagine all of God's children, all who have repented of their sins and exercised faith in Christ, all who have made covenants with him, either in this life or in the spirit world. Imagine all of us coming together into one great whole, the family of God. And it's made me think that perhaps we don't see as we're seen or know as we're known. Perhaps we don't have this Urim and Thummim-like existence where we understand everything until we learn to fuse all of the experiences and perspectives of all of God's children. I have learned so much about the Gospel, about God, about truth, about myself, learning from people who are different from me. I think I've probably learned more about the priesthood through conversations with women including wrestlings over priesthood with women than I have for men. I think I've learned incredible things about the family and and about sexuality and about chastity and about faith from students and friends that are gay. I've learned so much from conversations with a student of mine who's transgender and another that's asexual. I've learned from people with mental health challenges and You name the situation that they find themselves in. Racial issues from my black students. There's something about every grain of sand. And only when we fuse all of those together. That's what we're trying to build. Zion, from beginning to end in the Doctrine and Covenants. And have we become of one heart and of one mind? Can we see each other clearly? Until the entire earth becomes this sea of glass. Individual specks of sand, purified, refined, fused together as the Spirit of God like a fire is burning until we become one eternal family and can see one another through the experiences and perspectives that they've had. We have to become more open to that with one another. I don't think the earth will ever reach Urim and Thummim status until we do. Now, that was just their first question. Their second is perhaps even more confusing. Verse 2, question. What are we to understand by the four beasts spoken of in the same verse? One was like a lion, another was like a calf, another was like a man, and another was like an eagle. An emphasis on the word like. That's, that lets you know that That what John is describing there, again, the symbolic rather than the literal, it's, I'm not exactly sure what I'm seeing, but this one kind of looks like an eagle. That one looks a lot like a lion. And these four beasts surround the throne of God. Now, Revelation, the beginning of Revelation, is a lot like the beginning of Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel, he has this apocalyptic vision, apocalypse, end of the world kind of stuff same with Book of Revelation, same with Doctrine and Covenants as it's leading towards the second coming of Jesus Christ. In some ways, this is all one big piece of apocalyptic literature inasmuch as as it's meant to prepare us for the coming of Christ. And in Ezekiel's version, it's a beast with four faces, but there's a face of a, of an, a lion, the face of an eagle, the face of a man, and the face of an ox. And so you, you do get the same four types of beasts, the same four types of images there. And not that that helps explain what what on earth John or Ezekiel are talking about. But at least they're both talking about the same thing, evidently. Well, what does it mean? Well, good question. That's what Joseph's wondering. And the answer comes. They are figurative expressions. So keep in mind that. Figurative. Like a lion. Like a calf. As a man. Like an eagle. So figurative expressions used by the revelator, John, in describing heaven, the paradise of God the happiness of man, hold that thought in your mind, and of beasts, and of creeping things, and of the fowls of the air, that which is spiritual being in the likeness of that which is temporal, and that which is temporal in the likeness of that which is spiritual, the spirit of man in the likeness of his person as also the spirit of the beast and every other creature which God has created. Now there's a lot in there. First thing to remember, these are figurative expressions. So there's a meaning that the Lord wants us to, to get from these beasts beyond just some kind of literal interpretation. It's still theology he's trying to convey, not biology. Okay, Don't get too worked up over uh, other species. Although those exist, since as he says in this verse, the spiritual is in the likeness of that which is temporal, and vice versa. Remember section 29 that there's a spiritual creation and a physical creation? That all things are spiritual unto God, even temporal kinds of things. There's a lot of overlap. There's a, it's a good Venn diagram between the spiritual and the temporal. And in fact, Joseph Smith, in another point, did talk about heaven being populated by animals from God's worlds without number that we've never imagined here on this earth. So I guess we're not going to want to let our, our membership to the zoo lapse when we get to the celestial kingdom. For any of you who are, are, are pet lovers, yes, animals can be exalted as well. Though I have met a few dogs in my life that make me wonder about that old saying that all dogs go to heaven. I guess we'll see. But don't get too caught up in the, in the literal here since we're describing figurative expressions. And what's he trying to get across? He's trying to help you see what heaven is all about, what the paradise of God consists of, and specifically the happiness of man and beast and so on. We'll see that happiness repeated in verse 3. In fact, verse 3 includes another question about the beasts, especially since they understand now that those are figurative expressions. The question is this. Are the four beasts limited to individual beasts, or do they represent classes or orders? Now, the answer to this one, in some ways, is just as confusing as the question was, because the Lord says they are limited to four individual beasts. So it sounds like there's the answer. Their question was: uh, Is this? Are these just four specific individual beasts, or do they represent classes, orders, kind of kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species? Is this is this just a representation of something beyond them, or just focused on them alone? And the answer is: Oh, they're limited to four individual beasts. Great. Well, which were shown to John to represent the glory of the classes of beings, in their destined order or sphere of creation, in the enjoyment of their eternal felicity. Like, wait, wait, what? So which one is it? And it's like the Lord is going, yes. Are, are these individual beasts, or do they represent classes and orders of beings? He's like, yeah, they are individual beasts, which happen to represent the glory of the classes of beings. Like, I sometimes wonder if the Lord gives us answers that beg additional questions, just because he wants to keep the conversation going, because I do believe he wants to keep the conversation going like we saw last week, keep marveling, keep meditating, keep writing down your thoughts, keep waiting for another vision to unfold, because the Lord always has more to teach us. Well, whatever the case, in verse 3 you do get the sense that yes, these are four individual beasts, but they represent something beyond themselves. So perhaps... And that's the beauty of symbolism, and there's a lot of perhaps. Keep, be okay with ambiguity here. Could it represent this? Could it represent that? Yeah, could represent all of the above. Often, I have students over the years that, have, that ask, well, does this mean this? And there's this symbol, could this be the interpretation? And usually I'll say, uh, yeses are often more common than nos, in terms of what that might represent. Could it be this? Sure. Usually the no comes more clearly if your interpretation contradicts established doctrine. Remember, to establish doctrine, God speaks in prose rather than poetry. He teaches truth. It's like, it's like Nephi. Right? I glory in plainness because I want you to come to an understanding. I do not want you to misunderstand. And that's God. Well, if, I, if Nephi, Mr. Glory in Plainness, quotes Isaiah all the time, who gloried in something, but it wasn't plainness, makes you think, well, why would Nephi do that? Nephi is the personification of doctrine and principle. I'll say it as clearly and plainly as I can. But then why quote Isaiah? Nephi tells us that I might more fully persuade people to come unto Christ. I'm going to quote Isaiah. See, Isaiah symbolism has a persuasive power because we have to grapple with it, wrestle with it, make sense of it, unpack things, think a little harder. And in the process, we come to an appreciation of something that we understood elsewhere more clearly, the the persuasive power. So if your interpretation of a symbol persuades you to more fully appreciate or integrate in your life, a truth of the gospel you've learned more clearly elsewhere, then you're right, whatever that interpretation might be. It's coming from the Spirit, which always entices and invites to do good. It persuades you to come unto Christ. Well, in this case, these four individual beasts, like a lion, like a calf, as a man, like a flying eagle, but representing the glories of the classes of beings in their order or sphere of creation, all enjoying their eternal felicity. that Go back to that. the Eternal felicity in three, happiness in two. Men are that they might have joy, right? I guess beasts are that they might have joy too. And this sea of glass, this immortalized earth, is also a place of incredible joy, happiness, eternal felicity. But what are these classes of beings that you're talking about? Well, if they're classes of beings in in their glorified state, well, the lion might be an easy one to start with because we usually refer to the lion symbolically as the king of beasts. If you think about a lion representing the glory of a class of beings, picture wild animals and their exalted, their glorified king is a lion. Picture domesticated animals Uh, The the work horses, so to speak, or or the work oxen. Oh, okay, here you now see the calf, or the ox, as as Ezekiel saw. How about the eagle? To picture that most regal of birds, and man, and woman, given dominion over all things in the creation account. You're starting to get a sense of, of the glorified classes of beings, in their destined order or sphere of creation. Even beyond that, each of these animals seems to be a personification. Well, personify An animalification, is that even a word? A, A symbolic representation of certain divine attributes. A lion can be used to represent strength and majesty. A calf, humility and service. Man, intelligence and reason. Or an eagle, divinity mystery. In fact, it's interesting, in early Christian uh, history as well as art, these four beasts from the book of Revelation were also linked to the four Gospels, for example. Some of the early uh, church fathers and, and theologians, men like Irenaeus and Jerome or Augustine, tried to link these four beasts with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now they don't all agree with one another. And that can be tricky, uh, but also it shows the symbolic nature of things that it can, you can re- uh, interpret it in different directions. Some have compared Matthew to the lion, for example, because his, he begins with Jesus as king of kings. And then Luke is like the calf because you see more of a, a, a humble servant. Uh, Jesus is, is so open to, to minorities in the book of Luke, for example. Mark is sometimes represented as the man. Because in the humanity-divinity divide, in the book of Mark, you see much more of the the, the human side of Jesus. It's the simplest, most straightforward of the Gospels. As opposed to John especially, there's the eagle where you see the divinity of Jesus coming through, soaring on eagle's wings, so to speak. Uh, Other scholars, and again, this is the beauty of symbolism, it's a a symbol worth a thousand lessons. Some have taken those four beasts and realized, wait a minute, if you take the tribes of Israel each of which had a banner or insignia. The tribe of Judah was represented as a lion. The tribe of Ephraim was an ox, or in this case a calf. The tribe of Reuben was a man. And the tribe of Dan is an eagle. And in fact, if you were to look down from above at the camp of Israel, right in the middle of the camp is the tabernacle, but then three tribes are in each of the cardinal directions, three to the north, three to the south, three to the east, three to the west. And there was kind of a go-to tribe within each of those three. And guess which four they happened to be? Judah was on the east. Ephraim was on the west. Reuben was on the south. And Dan was on the north. Some have even suggested that beyond the view of heaven that John is seen in the book of Revelation chapter 4, could this also be kind of, the, I mean, if, if it's God's throne and he's surrounded by these four beasts, well, there's the tabernacle surrounded by the house of Israel. So is this a a temple scene that is opening up to John? Also, if all things are made to bear witness of God, if Christ is the fulfillment of every symbol, think about him as lion and and man and and ox and eagle. One of his symbolic names is the lion of the tribe of Judah. When We talk about the lion and the lamb lying down together. Well, he is both The, the lion side of Jesus. There's his leadership. The calf side of Jesus, there's his self-sacrifice. Calves and oxen were, were often used in sacrifice, just like lambs were. The man side of Jesus, well, there is his incarnation, that he would condescend to come down, to be like man almost, as we sing. And the eagle, to return heavenward, to soar on eagle's wings, well, there's resurrection. So whether these, these symbols represent the different types of, of animals in, in God's creation, whether they represent divine attributes, whether they represent divinity himself, namely Jesus Christ, whether they represent the house of Israel surrounding the temple, the tabernacle, the throne of God, it's incredible what John is seeing and what we're trying to make sense of in this heavenly vision. Now verse 4 gives us another insight. Because in the book of Revelation version, the, the, these aren't just, it's not just a lion and, a, and an eagle and an, a, a calf and a man. These are, are strange symbols here because each of these four beasts were covered with eyes, full of eyes within, is how Revelation says it. And they each had six wings. So now we're really getting confused. But don't feel bad, they were confused too. So they asked in verse 4, what are we to understand by the eyes and wings which the beasts had? And the answer? Their eyes are a representation of light and knowledge. That is, they are full of knowledge, full of eyes, okay? And their wings are a representation of power, to move, to act, etc. Now, I I want you to think about this for a moment. You've you've heard the saying, man, that person has eyes in the back of their head. Well, uh, please don't get literal here, okay? But symbolically speaking, what do they mean by that? eyes in the back of their head it's like man they can just sense that someone's behind them they're just so aware of their surroundings well if it's one thing to have eyes in the back of your head can you imagine being covered with eyes to be full of eyes there's not a thing that you wouldn't understand so here when it says that they are full of knowledge I mean, they are standing on a Urim and Thummim, after all, a sea of glass that they can know as they are known, see as they are seen. Being covered with eyes, that's a pretty good depiction of that. In fact, one of the great things about symbolism, it's like God is playing Pictionary with us. Now, if you get frustrated playing Pictionary, then you probably get frustrated playing symbolism too. I get that. But imagine playing Pictionary, and you're the one up there with a pen in hand. You turn over the next card and on it, it says omniscience. And you think, oh great, how am I going to do this? Well, maybe you draw a brain uh, with, with lines coming out like this is the ultimate brain. You know everything. That, that might be a good way to do it. But another really good way, imagine drawing something or someone and covering it with eyes. Think of how much knowledge you gained through that particular sense. It's probably the one whereby most of us learn the most. And like I said, not just eyes in the back of your head, but eyes everywhere. That's a pretty good depiction of omniscience, of perfect knowledge. Well, how about this one? What if you you know, you got yours, now it's their turn. And they go up to, and grab the pen, they're ready to draw, and they lift their card, turn it over, and it says, agency. You think, oh, great, how on earth am I going to depict? How do I draw agency? right? Huh? You might, you might be wrestling with that for a while until you think, well, how about wings? You see, with feet, I can move forward and back and side to side. I can go where I want to go. But can you imagine having wings? You can go anywhere, not just forward, back, side to side. You can go up and down, loop to loop. I mean, with wings, I think so often that's why we, we dream of being able to fly. Because it can take us places we would never otherwise be able to go. We can do things we just weren't designed to do on this earth. So, at the end of verse 4, when it says that those wings are a representation of power to move, power to act, in a word, that's agency. So back to our Pictionary game, dry agency? Well, putting wings on is pretty good. In fact, Six wings, because that would suggest not just the forward and the back, there's two, side to side, there's four, up, down, there's six. I have six wings, I really can do anything. And this is where that symbol, as couched in the description of John's vision of, of Revelation 4, becomes so powerful. Because what's the focal point? I mean... The saints here are wondering about the beasts and about the sea of glass. And we'll see in a moment, they're wondering about the 24 elders that surround the throne. But it's the throne itself, and more importantly, him who sits upon it, that is the focal point of Revelation 4. I don't know if you remember, last week in section 76, when we were discussing the first of the six visions that Joseph and Sidney saw, it was the vision of the Father and the Son. This is the testimony, last of all, which we give of him, that he lives, for we saw him. And I mentioned, just very briefly in passing, that that was the equivalent of a Revelation 4 and 5 experience. That Revelation 4 is meant to to give you a sense of awe before God. And Revelation 5 is meant to give you a sense of awe before Jesus Christ. Well, what is Revelation 4 doing for us here? Especially as we begin to understand it better with the help of Revelation, uh, section 77. Imagine going into the presence of God. They're in heaven, or if this is a temple scene, they're into the Holy of Holies. You've passed the veil and you're now in his presence. And this is a place of perfect knowledge. No mountains to cover yourself. No reason to hide. We, we are... Fully exposed to the all-seeing eye of God. But there's no shame. There's no guilt. There's only joy. There's happiness. There's eternal felicity. And then you see these beasts surrounding the throne of God, which, again, could represent the entire house of Israel surrounding him, or all of God's creation in whatever manifestation, whatever order or class of being it might happen to be. And then exalt it. Take, it the be- take the best of the best. The glory of those classes. King of wild animals. King of domesticated animals. King of birds. King of all. And bring them before God. And what do they do? Well, first of all, what do they have? They have perfect knowledge. Covered in eyes. They have complete and total agency. Wings in every direction. And yet, what do those all-knowing and all-able Uh, creations do? They worship God. That's what they're doing in Revelation chapter 4. It's again what they're doing in Revelation 5 to the Son. So both to the Father and the Son. What do we do? We worship. Let me try to put it this way. If you knew everything, what's the best use of that knowledge? Worshiping God. If you could do anything... What would be the greatest use of your agency? Worshiping God. A worship that is both adoration and emulation, to borrow from Elder Maxwell. To want to be like them. In fact, I could picture all of these symbolic creations closing all of those eyes before God. Just like we do in prayer. Admitting that we know nothing compared to the omniscience of God himself. Even me, covered in eyes. I still know nothing compared to God. And so I close them in humble adoration. Take my six wings that allow me to go anywhere. And what would I do in the presence of God? I would fold those wings, just like I fold my arms in prayer, saying, not my will, but thine be done. You sense what's happening here? This is what the saints need to understand as they are trying to establish Zion. What are you doing with your eyes and wings? Especially when you recognize just how blind and earthbound we happen to be in this mortal existence compared to our all-knowing and all-powerful Father in Heaven. Omniscience and omnipotence, eyes and wings, God outranks us infinitely in all of those attributes. We get that sense again echoed When we meet the 24 elders in verse five, what are we to understand by the four and 20 elders spoken of by John? Well, the Lord answers. We are to understand that these elders whom John saw were elders who had been faithful in the work of the ministry and were dead, who belonged to the seven churches and were then in the paradise of God. Now, we could ask the same question that they asked about the beasts back in verse 3. Well, are they individual, 24? Are they 24 specific, individual elders? Or do they represent something beyond them? And again, I'm sure the Lord could say, yes. I mean, you get in verse in verse 5 that, yes, they are individual elders. They were faithful in the work. They belonged to the seven churches. But even the seven churches of Revelation can be symbolic. Since seven, in the days of creation, help us think of completeness and totality and, and finishing something. This the whole thing. The work is done. Seven days of creation. Seven dispensations. 7,000 years of the earth's existence, which we'll see more of in, in this revelation. So the seven churches could represent the entire church. And so the 24 elders that are coming from these seven churches, think about all the righteous, all the faithful who have been in the ministry. Those who belong to the, the entire church of God. And what are they doing? They're worshiping God too. In fact, if you go back to the Revelation 4 uh, original, they are clothed in white raiment. There's their purity. They are wearing crowns of gold upon their head. There's their majesty, their authority given them by the King of Kings himself. In Revelation 5, those 24 elders are shown with harps. There's praise and adoration, with incense, which represents the prayers of the saints ascending heavenward. I guess they're closing their eyes and folding their wings as well. And best of all, in my opinion, at the end of Revelation 4, what do these elders do with the crowns that they've been crowned with? They cast them at the feet of the King who deserves all of our honor and our praise and our glory. That's how section 76 ended. To him be all glory and honor and dominion. There's actually a a Christian band called Casting Crowns. And that's where they got their name from the end of Revelation chapter 4. It's not about me. It's about him. We saw that in section 76 as well. Do not glory in man, but all glory to God. Again, no matter how much you know, eyes everywhere, no matter what you, how much power or authority, whatever you can do, all of those wings, who do you owe it all to? To God. Where'd you get that white raiment? It was stained until it was washed in the blood of the Lamb. Where'd you get that crown? It was given you, granted you, by the King of Kings himself. And what's the best thing we can do with it? Give it back not my will, but thine be done. And thine be the honor and the glory and the majesty. Now, why 24 of them? I would have thought 12. 12 12 seems to be more of a symbolic number than 24. But what is 24? It's two 12s. And perhaps we could think of the 12 tribes of Israel that brings in the prophets from and the people of Israel from the Old Testament. Add that to the 12 apostles and you have the people of God in the New Testament. So old or new, past or present, God's covenant people in any age, bring the prophets and apostles together. Gather the people of God in all dispensation. Remember, we're trying to fuse a sea of glass from all of these individual grains of sand. Bring them all and worship God together. In the Old Testament, even mentions the, the Levite tribe that was in charge of the temple or the tabernacle. They were assigned all kinds of different priesthood duties. But 24,000 of them had responsibility for the temple. So again, if we think of this in in temple terms, the temple at the center, surrounded by the tribes of Israel, well, 24 elders, each one representing a thousand others like them that are serving God day and night in his holy house. Oh, there's time well spent. Now, Before we go on to verse 6 and move on to a new chapter in the book of Revelation, like I said at the beginning, the fact that these first five verses all grow out of their study of Revelation 4 is incredibly significant to me because that is the chapter of awe before God. Sadly, most people I know who study the book of Revelation want to jump ahead to the even more esoteric or interesting or confusing kinds of things. Let's talk about the beast or the mark of the beast. Let's talk about 666. Let's talk about the red dragon and and the scarlet harlot. Let's talk about the merchant city or the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Let's talk about these locusts with women's hair and with scorpion tails. I mean, it is quite the menagerie throughout the book of Revelation. But that's not what's on the mind of the prophet or the leaders of the church. I mean, I'm sure they're all intrigued by that. And it piques their curiosity. How could it not? But I love the fact that their focus is on something so much simpler, seemingly. But so much more important. Even beyond, I don't know, trying to date the second coming. Which a lot of people use the book of Revelation to try to do. They're trying to understand, how can I better worship God? How do I come unto Him? How do I cast my crown at His feet? Those are questions worth pondering for all of us. Now in verse 6, what are we to understand by the book which John saw, which was sealed on the back with seven seals? See, now we're in Revelation chapter 5. An angel who is strong, that's the word that used described him, holds up this book that is sealed shut. Sealed with seven seals. Now sometimes we think of uh, a literal book the kind that we that we use in our day and, and having kind of seven clasps upon it if you're a, an early Hebrew you probably think more of a scroll but that scroll is also sealed you can picture the, kind of the wax seal of the king of kings and unless you have the authority of that seal then it, it's, if it's not addressed to you if you haven't been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise then you're not allowed to open it because it wasn't addressed to you that's male tampering okay So by having it sealed by seven seals, it's going to have to be someone in authority to be able to open it at all. And this strong angel holds up the book that God himself had given him and asks, who is able to open it? And no one is. No one is worthy. That's the question. See, here's the amazing thing. What's the adjective that describes the angel? Strong. But what's the adjective that the angel is looking for to be able to open the book with the seven seals? worthy who is worthy to open the book now the saints here are wondering what does that mean and the answer comes in verse six we are to understand that it contains the revealed will mysteries and the works of God the hidden things of his economy concerning this earth during the seven thousand years of its continuance or its temporal existence which then begs the question in verse seven well then what are we to understand by the seven seals with which it was sealed and the answer to that we are to understand that the first seal contains the things of the first thousand years and the second also of the second thousand years and so on until the seventh now that seems to make good sense so these seven seals are the seven thousand years of the earth's temporal existence and basically if you were to do a rough dating of the old testament uh lots of church historians in the early days did that they had not much else to do in the monastery i guess uh, and so they dated the fall of Adam at around 4,000 B.C. Well, if that's 4,000 years then till the birth of Christ, that's four seals. And then the first thousand and the second thousand, now we're, we're getting into the 21st century or into the third millennium after Jesus. So there's the four millennium before Christ and now we're beginning the third millennium after. There's 7,000. Now, no, don't freak out and go, Oh, the year 2000, Y2K. It uh, was, wasn't just some kind of computer scare. Was that the beginning of the millennium? The thousand years. Well, the dates are, are rough estimates, okay? But we are getting closer. This is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, after all. But even those numbers are, numbers are fascinating. Because if we think about the seven days of creation, and on the 7th it was a day of rest, well, think about the 7,000 years of the Earth's temporal existence. And the 7th thousand is a day of rest. It is a millennial reign with peace. You could even think about it with Christ died at the meridian of times, and yet what happened? He returned on the third day. And so picture that third day, that third seal after his mortal ministry. That's his personal reign during the millennium. The Lord of the Sabbath will return for the Sabbath to keep us all holy, Here upon earth so there's the time factor but to put them all those seven seals on this book and and again back to verse six what's the book about it's god's will it's his mysteries it's his works it's his economy concerning the earth now we're going to see later in the book of revelation and later in section 77 that at one point john himself is given a book And as we'll see here, the book represents a mission call of sorts for John himself. Well, if a book is a a mission call for John, well, imagine this book with the seven seals addressed to only one who is worthy to open it. Here's the mission call of the Messiah. And no wonder it's not strength that allows you to open it. It's worthiness. Because who is worthy to open the book? Who can possibly accomplish the Father's will? unlock his mysteries, perform his works, from beginning to end, it's going to have to be the Messiah. I sometimes joke with my students, imagine pre-mortality and opening up the newspaper... You know, the Celestial Times or or the pre-mortal Post. I don't know the name. But you're going through reading the news, uh, the sports section. You can see how the angels are playing or the saints. Those are only only two teams up there. But what would be most fascinating is to turn the pages until you got to the want ads, the classifieds. And there, page after page, it's all these help-wanted. You can picture one large print because it's a really important role to fill. Help-wanted, Mother of the Son of God must be a pure vessel, a a willing handmaid. And Mary had the courage and faith to be able to, to apply for that position, or more likely, to accept when she was chosen for it. Me, I must have seen one that says, help wanted, gospel teacher, no prior experience needed, but you need to really love my word and love my children. I thought, well, here am I, send me. Prophets and apostles, more importantly, moms and dads, or brothers and sisters, or aunts and uncles, just positions needing to be filled throughout history. But imagine turning and seeing a full page spread that didn't say help wanted, it said help required. Position must be filled. And what was that position? Messiah, Son of God, Savior of the world. And then you know how some want ads, it'll say must have these qualifications. Well, to see the list of what would be required of the Savior of the world must be worthy, first and foremost. A sinless sacrifice. Oh yeah, sacrifice would be required of you as well. Well, in Revelation 5, remember 4 was to give us awe of the Father, 5 is to give us awe of the Son. Well, as this strong angel holds the book with the seven seals, the mission call of the Messiah, and asks who is worthy to open the book, who's worthy to perform God's saving work throughout all the earth's existence, no one was able. No one volunteered until tears began to stream down the faces of everyone there in premortality. I mean, we read the fast version in Abraham chapter 3, where the father says, whom shall I send? And one said, here am I, send me. It doesn't even seem to be a pause between it. No drama Well, make sure you read Abraham 3 in light of Revelation 5. Oh, there was drama, and there was a long pause between the whom shall I send and the here am I, send me. It was silence, only broken by the sound of sobbing as we realized, wait a minute, if that position doesn't get filled, then none of our lesser positions matter at all which makes it all the more powerful when finally one holy hand was raised. And with a, here am I, send me, our tears of mourning turn to tears of joy, and the sounds of sorrow turn to sounds of praise. Worshiping the sun, the Lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed to open the book, the angel says. And there are just echoes and and resounding, almost concentric circles of worship and praise as we all sing the song of salvation to the Father and the Son, the Lion and the Lamb, Jesus Christ. It is such a powerful scene. Now back to section 77. In verse 8 they ask, What are we to understand by the four angels spoken of in the seventh chapter and first verse of Revelation? You see, by then, John has, has flown us through the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth seal. That only takes about a chapter. And the bulk of the book of Revelation dwells on what happens in the sixth seal, especially at the end of it, and then into the opening of the seventh seal and the beginning of the millennium, the coming of Christ, and the, the celestial city. John's focus is not on history. It's on prophecy, and specifically prophecies of the last days. That's what you're starting to see with these four angels that are spoken of at the beginning of Revelation 7. The answer, what do they represent? Verse 8 continues, we are to understand that they are four angels sent forth from God to whom is given power over the four parts of the earth. So that's where the four comes in. We talk about the four quarters of the earth, we think north, south, east, west. So picture the entire earth. And these angels called to do something here. Namely, to save life and to destroy. So picture destroying angels here. These are they who have the everlasting gospel to commit to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. That's everyone, north, south, east, west, four corners of the earth. Having power to shut up the heavens, to seal up unto life, or to cast down to the regions of darkness. So picture destroying angels. Think about the Passover, for example. We saw that back in section 29 or section 45. Revelations about the second coming and the destruction of the wicked, the telestial, will not be here for the resurrection of the just or the beginning of the millennium. They come at the end. We saw that last week. But this destruction that precedes the second coming is often likened to the plagues of Egypt. And what's the final plague, the tenth one that finally does succeed at freeing the slaves? It's the death of the firstborn. And, And how do you avoid it? By using the blood of the lamb to mark your home. And if you bear that mark, then the destroying angel passes over you. And instead of finding death, you find life. Instead of sorrow, there is joy. Instead of bondage, there is newfound freedom. And that is exactly what the everlasting gospel is meant to accomplish. Nephi describes it as a two-edged sword. And what are these angels doing? They are both saving life and destroying We call them destroying angels, but they're saving angels just as much. It all depends on how we react to the everlasting gospel that they are committing to these four quarters of the earth. Will we let them seal us up unto life? Or will we force them to cast us down to regions of darkness? How will we respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ? on Verse 9, we meet another angel. What are we to understand by the angel ascending from the east? Revelation 7th chapter and 2nd verse. Now this is kind of the angel that's in charge of the other four that were mentioned in the previous verse. The specific answer the Lord gives here, we are to understand that the angel ascending from the east is he to whom is given the seal of the living God over the twelve tribes of Israel. Wherefore, he crieth unto the four angels, having the everlasting gospel, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, Till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads, and if you will receive it, this is Elias, which was to come to gather together the tribes of Israel and restore all things. So you see in this mighty angel kind of holding in the other angels by the reins. Don't hurt the earth or the sea or the trees. Don't destroy. I'm holding you back. Until we've had time to seal the servants of God in their foreheads. In the book of Revelation, so much of it is is this dualistic light versus darkness, uh, good versus evil. There's pairs of almost everything. The lamb versus the beast. The celestial city versus the merchant city of Babylon. The bride of Christ versus the, the scarlet harlot. The marriage feast of the Lamb compared to the Supper of the Great God. I mean, it's amazing to to kind of line it all up. It makes the choice between good and evil incredibly clear for us. Well, the same can be said of this seal upon the forehead. Usually we talk about the, the 666, which is just shy of a perfect 777. So close and yet so far away. Quite the counterfeit. And there's the adversary. What's on their mind? And yet, what's on the mind, what's sealed on the forehead of the righteous? The name of the Father. If you think back to those those 24,000 Levites in charge of the temple, if you're a high priest, seed of Aaron, you have this mitre, this kind of hat on your head, and across the forehead, a golden plate that says engraved upon it, Holiness to the Lord. You've probably seen that on the outside of temples. Well, is that on our mind all the time? Has it been sealed upon our foreheads? And God is trying to give us time to make sure that is deeply etched and graven upon the fleshy tables of the heart and the mind. Are we becoming more like Jesus? And here, this angel, making sure we are all prepared to receive it. And that preparation is key. That's why he's called an Elias. Because eliass it's not just a name. The Greek way to say Elijah is Elias. Some say, so some say, oh, Elias, that's just Elijah. But Elias is also a title more than just a name. And a title for one who prepares the way. John the Baptist was an Elias. In fact, in the JST of John chapter 1, John the Baptist speaks of, of two Eliases. One that is, com- that is coming to prepare all things and another who is coming to restore all things. And you get that sense here in in section 77, verse 9. If you can receive it, if you can handle this, this is the Elias who is coming to gather together the tribes of Israel and to restore all things. Now, some have said that this Elias is none other than Jesus himself. I mean, who's in charge of all the destroying angels? Who's the one that's really kind of calling the shots as far as time is concerned to say, no, no, no. Keep this stronghold in Kirtland for the next five years. I'm not going to overthrow the wicked because I'm trying to save some. I'm going to prolong their days so they have time to repent, even as I'm trying to hasten my work so that the other the adversary doesn't have time to improve his his tactics. Who is it that would be able to say to all of the, the, the hosts of heaven, hold back versus move forward? Who is it that is coming to gather together in him all things? It's Christ. Who is the restorer of all things? The restorer of life from death, of freedom out of bondage. It's Jesus Christ. So he can be the ultimate Elias. Another way to think of it is the house of Israel. In a way, aren't we all Eliases called to prepare other people for the coming of Christ? To try to help them engrave holiness to the Lord upon their foreheads? Are we engaged in the work of gathering and restoring the people of God to a right relationship with God? No, we don't control the angels. We don't rein them in. But perhaps as we become ministering angels ourselves, we can spur ourselves forward. Hasten the day. By the way, at one point Joseph did talk about this seal upon the foreheads. He compared it to having your calling and election made sure. And he said this, Then having this promise sealed unto them, it was an anchor to the soul, sure and steadfast, though the thunders might roll and lightnings flash and earthquakes bellow and war gather thick around. Sound like these destroying angels? Sound like the plagues of Egypt? Yet this hope and knowledge would support the soul in every hour of trial, trouble, and tribulation. What powerful reassurance. This hope. This knowledge. The fact you have God on the mind. His holiness sealed in your forehead. There is an anchor to the soul, sure and steadfast. Thunders and lightnings, earthquakes and war. I can endure the tempest because I know that He is coming who will ultimately say, Peace, be still, and turn this all into a sea of glass. That's what I'm looking forward to. And oh, I hope it comes soon. That's their question. Verse 10. What time are the things spoken of in this chapter to be accomplished? And the answer? They are to be accomplished in the sixth thousand years, or the opening of the sixth seal. And that's the time in which we live. The end of the sixth seal. Now verse 11. A common question still to this day. What are we to understand by sealing the 144,000 out of all the tribes of Israel? 12,000 out of every tribe. And the answer? We are to understand that those who are sealed are high priests, ordained unto the holy order of God to administer the everlasting gospel. Similar to those angels we met a few verses ago. For they are they who are ordained out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, by the angels to whom is given power over the nations of the earth, to bring as many as will come to the Church of the Firstborn." Church of the Firstborn, that should remind us of our discussion of the celestial kingdom last week. So who are these 144,000? They are high priests trying to administer the gospel, to gather in and prepare the way, again we're all Elias's here, the saved out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Now again, we've got to keep thinking this, Every time you deal with symbolism, how much of this is literal? How much of this is figurative? And usually the answer is, "Eh, yes, there's elements of both. Now, on the literal side, I would say priesthood. High priests ordained to the holy order of God. On the figurative side, I would say the number 144,000. You see, if you think 144, that's just 12 times 12. So you take 12, the 12 tribes of Israel, God's covenant people, and you, you square it. You see, the the holy of holies in the tabernacle or the temple was a perfect cube. When you square something, it makes it more perfect. It's the same length and width. Well, if you want to make perfect perfect, then cube it. And that's the holy of holies. Well, here you take 12 tribes of Israel and square it, perfect it, and then multiply it by another thousand, which again is just kind of this exalting number. So you take the 144,000, perfected, exalted Israel, and what is our job as one united Elias? Go out and prepare the rest of the world. Gather them out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Bring them to Zion. Bring them to the church of the firstborn. This goes back to what we learned from Elder Bednar about being the seed of Abraham, the chosen people. Well, who are these 144,000? They are chosen ones, but they are chosen to choose other people so that they can choose to be chosen as well. How do you choose to be chosen? You choose Christ, and in return, he chooses you to keep choosing others. That's how the work moves forward. So all hands on deck, all 144,000 of us. Now verse 12, what are we to understand by the sounding of the trumpets mentioned in the eighth chapter of Revelation? Think about how many revelations we've seen in the Doctrine and Covenants that talk about raising our voice with the sound of a trump. In section 88, which I mentioned is in some ways the Doctrine and Covenants equivalent of the book of Revelation, we'll see the sounding of trumpets there as well. It's calling attention. It's and here. It's mustering the forces. It's marching forward. Well, what are these trumpets? The answer in verse 12, We are to understand that as God made the world in six days, And on the seventh day, he finished his work and sanctified it. And also formed man out of the dust of the earth. Now, he's not saying that he did that on the seventh day. He's just kind of referring back to these seven days of creation. But on the seventh day, he finished it all. Even so, in the beginning of the seventh thousand years, so now we're talking millennium, will the Lord God sanctify the earth. The stormy sea is starting to settle back into glass. He will sanctify the earth and complete the salvation of man and judge all things, and shall redeem all things, except that which he hath not put into his power. There's the sons of perdition we met last week. When he shall have sealed all things unto the end of all things, and the sounding of the trumpets of the seven angels are the preparing and finishing of his work, in the beginning of the seventh thousand years, the preparing of the way before the time of his coming. This is what these last days are meant to accomplish. It's preparing the way for the time of his coming. Remember, that's the thesis statement of the Doctrine and Covenants. We're back in the, in the preface, section 1. Prepare ye, prepare ye for that which is to come. For the day of the Lord is nigh. Is the, these are the days that we live in. And so what are these trumpets sounding? They're trying to wake up the world for the conflict of justice. We're trying to do God's work. We're trying to help him sanctify the earth to complete the salvation of man. Judgment and redemption sealing that that mark of God upon the foreheads of all God's choosing and chosen children, preparing, finishing the work. Every time we go to general conference, we're hearing a trumpet blast. Every time we open our scriptures and allow the Spirit to open the eyes of our understanding, well, hopefully he's opening the ear of our understanding too, so we can hear those trumpets calling us to march forward. We've got work to do. Preparing and finishing God's work. In verse 13, when are the things to be accomplished, which are written in the ninth chapter of Revelation? I mean, that's really when this preparatory work has come to fulfillment. When is it going to happen? The answer, they are to be accomplished after the opening of the seventh seal, but before the coming of Christ which is actually fascinating. We often just assume that, oh yeah, well, Jesus comes at the beginning of the seventh seal. He, he's the one that ushers in the millennium. Well, yes and no. Uh, he ushers in this, this millennial day of rest and peace. He returns to, re- to reign personally upon the earth. That's the 10th article of faith too. But according to this, there is some time at the beginning of the seventh seal before the actual coming of Jesus Christ, which to me is fascinating. You see, there's two major branches of millennialism, which is this focus on the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, There's people called premillennialists and those called postmillennialists. The pre and the post, before and after, just means when do you think Jesus will come? And premillennialists believe that Jesus comes at the beginning of the millennium, and postmillennialists believe that Jesus comes at the end. I've talked about this before, but just quick review. There's kind of an optimism versus pessimism over this. You see, the premillennialists are a little more pessimistic because they think the earth is going to hell in a handbasket. We're not going to fix it. It's going to have to be Jesus stepping in and saying, okay, you guys are ruining this. I've got to fix this. He comes in, binds Satan, and brings in millennial peace. The more optimistic version, and some would say even the more humanistic version, is that we pull it off that we achieve peace on earth and social justice, that we've ushered in the millennium. And as a result, then the Savior can come at the end to basically accept the gift that we finally wrapped up to give to him, that the responsibility is ours to make these changes. I mean, we made the mess. we got to clean it up. Now, technically and chronologically, as Latter-day Saints, which are we? Well, we're premillennialists. Jesus will come at the beginning to usher it in. He will bind Satan. But there's a part of us that has post-millennialist leanings. To me, it's a beautiful pair of contraries to prove. Because are we aware of the the wickedness and evil upon the earth? The the pessimistic view of human nature? Yeah. But also we see the perfectibility of human nature through the grace of Christ. And we want to be involved in that. We want to help seal upon the foreheads of, of anyone. We want to gather and prepare them. We are trying to establish Zion, right? But remember Zion from below, meeting Zion from above? That Zion is built by us, but it's also brought by Christ? Well, there's proving contraries there too. The post millennialism in us is trying to build Zion to prepare the earth for the second coming. The premillennialists in us are praying for the Lord to come and fix things. And I get the sense from verse 13 with this idea of, well, when's all this stuff going to happen? It's after the opening of the seventh seal. What was meant to be millennial has already begun, but Jesus hasn't yet come. Will we be able to achieve social justice and peace on earth by ourselves? No. But we have to get moving in that direction. That's why we're trying to establish Zion. We're trying to live millennially even before Jesus Christ comes. And as we do so, we're giving the world a preview of coming attractions. We are declaring by word and by flight, as we saw earlier, this escape from Babylon as we come to Zion. And we want the whole world to follow us out. That's our mission. That's the, that's the book that he's given us. It's a piece of cake compared to the book with the seven seals. But we, have, we do have a book to accept. We do have a mission call to perform. That's the hint in verse 14. What are we to understand by the little book, which was eaten by John as mentioned in the 10th chapter of Revelation? I do love that detail. He didn't just accept it. He had to eat it. It, You are what you eat. You are the mission that's been given you. You need to become a missionary, not just go on a mission. You need to become a gatherer, a preparer, an Elias. So eat it. When John eats it, by the way, it says, it was sweet in his mouth, but bitter in the belly. And I don't know a more bitter sweet experience in life than trying to share the gospel with people who may or may not accept it. All you know, those destroying slash saving angels, yeah, that's bitter sweet too. And what was this book that John ate? We hinted at it earlier, but verse 14 we are to understand that it was a mission and an ordinance for him to gather the tribes of Israel. Behold, this is Elias, who, as it is written, must come and restore all things. So there's John the Revelator as an Elias too. And we're all meant to join him. He then ends this revelation with one last question. What is to be understood by the two witnesses in the 11th chapter of Revelation? And the answer, they are two prophets that are to be raised up to the Jewish nation in the last days at the time of the Restoration and to prophesy to the Jews after they are gathered and have built the city of Jerusalem in the land of their fathers. Revelation 11 is an incredibly tricky chapter. It's these two prophets that are called to to Jerusalem and they are slain. And they lie in the streets unburied for three and a half days after which they then rise again. Now literal, symbolic, as is typically the case, yes. And to think of the literal side, You get that sense here in verse 15, two prophets raised up to the Jewish nation. By the way, the Jewish nation didn't exist when Joseph received this revelation. It wasn't until 1948 that there was a Jewish nation upon the earth. But these prophets raised up to them at the time of restoration. They're there to prophesy. They're there to gather. They're there to build the city of Jerusalem. We've got a new Jerusalem to build in Missouri. We've got an old one to build in, in Israel. Temples in both places. Uh, I mean, there were two headquarters at the beginning of the church, Kirtland and and Independence. Well, there will be two headquarters in the end, Jerusalem and New Jerusalem, Old World and New, Uh, Stick of Judah, Stick of Ephraim, it's all coming together. But think of the, the figurative side of that also, especially if we think of Elias being not just an individual person, but also representing all of us. Can we be part of these prophets that are raised up to the Jewish nation. as The first have become last and now the last are becoming first again. The day of the Gentiles is being fulfilled and now the Gospel is going back to God's originally chosen people. Revelation 11 is far too complex to explain uh, adequately here. John is actually hearkening back to prophecies from Zechariah uh, about these two olive trees. Those are the two prophets that are being raised. And if you think about Zechariah, he's talking about the restoration of the house of Israel in his day, thanks to two, a king and a priest. The king is Zerubbabel, the priest is Joshua, and these two men help reestablish Israel and, and rebuild the temple post-Babylonian destruction. Well, there seems to be a hint of that. Uh, in, in John, trying to hoping that his, his audience remembers the book of Zechariah. They probably did. We, uh, not so much. I actually love what Mike Wilcox wrote in his great book about Revelation. There's a lot of great books that help understand the book of Revelation. My favorite, and yes, I'm biased. He's my uncle. But what I love about it is to find the personal application in the book of Revelation to see where we fit in it all. And as he weaves together Zechariah and Revelation 11, I love the way he puts it in summary. He writes, Kings, high priests, a cleansed priesthood, the twelve eyes of the Lord, as apostles and seers, gathering scattered Israel, being released from Babylon's captivity, rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, constructing the temple at its center, preparing the way for the branch, overcoming Satan's challenges, surmounting every mountain, accomplishing all things through the weak and simple, endowed with heaven's Holy Spirit. Every element of Zechariah's visions is repeated in the great Latter-day work. All of this richness of detail, John is granted by the simple allusion to the olive trees. And that's the two prophets that that we're thinking about here. You will have your future Joshua's and Zerubbabel's, the Lord seems to say through the images of Revelation. They will face opposition from the adversary, and the priesthood must be purged. But the way of the Lord's return will be accomplished again just as it was after the Babylonian captivity that preceded his first coming. I love that description because I'm not just waiting for two members of the Quorum of the Twelve to be called to an Israel area presidency, and then holding my breath and wondering about martyrdom in the streets of Jerusalem, and then holding my breath for three and a half days until they come back. I do believe in literal fulfillment of all of this. I just don't know if I'll be here for it. And so what do I do in the meantime? I have faith in the Joshua's and Zerubbabel's that we're all called to be, raised up as kings and priests, queens and priestesses, with the authority and the responsibility to gather Israel and prepare the way for the coming of Christ. That's what we're called to do. It's interesting that this this chapter, this Revelation, ends now And they're only up through chapter 11. We're only halfway through the book of Revelation. And what seems to be even the trickier stuff still lies ahead. Now, on the one hand, I'm sure they still had more questions and would have loved to continue onward. I would love to have a section 77 that goes along verse by verse through the entire book of Revelation, believe me. But that's not what we have. Now, some have suggested that because of the timing of this, if it took place right before the, the attack on Joseph and Sidney Rigdon. They're the ones working on the JST after all. But as they were attacked by the mobs in Hiram, Ohio. I talked about this a few weeks ago. Joseph tarred and feathered. Uh, attempted murder. All of this. Did that pause the work on the JST for a time? Did it pause the kinds of conversations that were being had about the book of Revelation, for example? Makes me wonder what else we missed. If they could have, in, in peace continued these kinds of conversations. Well, I've got questions about the rest of Revelation, too. And so often, it's opposition. It's persecution. It's lack of unity and, and peacemaking that keeps us from continuing the conversations we might otherwise have had with God. But in some ways, I do find a certain symbolism in the stop point here. Of not getting into all of those other visions in the second half of the book of Revelation. Of not trying to speculate about the identity of the beast or the number of his name with the 666. To be a little less concerned about oh the timing of the coming forth of these beasts or the red dragon. And to be a little bit more concerned about the two things that seem to, to focus the saints' attention in section 77. The worship of God and Christ, and the establishment of Zion upon the earth. I love that That those are the focal points of this revelation. How can I better come into Christ and help other people do likewise? Adoration, emulation, preparation, all that God would have us do as we prepare the earth for the coming of his Son. Oh, it's time to roll up our sleeves and get to it. Now, it seems like an abrupt shift to go from section 77 to 78. I mean, heavenly visions of the book of Revelation, and then getting our feet decidedly back on the earth in section 78 as we talk about mercantile and literary uh, efforts among the saints. And yet, back to section 29, everything's spiritual to me. Nothing's solely temporal. And so in this work of preparation and of gathering that we talk about in section 77, yes, there are some temporal and some spiritual components that need to go into it. And so in section 78 specifically, there's the the bishop's storehouses with with one in each location. Bishop Partridge down in Missouri and Bishop Whitney up in Ohio. And each of them has a store that needs to be uh, providing for the saints. There's a temporal side. And this literary firm that we met a few weeks ago that's going down to to Zion to publish the revelations that Joseph has received. There's a spiritual component. So we need to feast on actual food. Thank you, Bishop Storehouse. And feast upon the words of Christ. Thank you, literary firm. By the time section 78 comes, they're wondering how exactly do we do that? They actually form something called the United Firm, that is meant to oversee, in some ways we might consider it like the, like the presiding bishopric now. That's over all of these temporal concerns in, in the church. The ironic priesthood aspect of God's kingdom. And as this united firm is, well, uniting, section 78 is instruction given to them. Verse 1, The Lord spake unto Joseph Smith Jr., saying, Hearken unto me, saith the Lord your God, who are ordained unto the high priesthood of my church, who have assembled yourselves together. Listen up, I've got some instructions for you. Verse 2, listen to the counsel of him who has ordained you from on high, who shall speak in your ears the words of wisdom, that salvation may be unto you in that thing which you have presented before me, saith the Lord your God. You see, what are they presenting before him? Here's our thoughts. Here's this. We've got to get together. We have to organize things. Somebody's got to publish and print. Somebody's got to to be able to sell goods and provide for the poor and the needy. How do we do this? We want salvation to come out of both these temporal and spiritual efforts, but we need your help and guidance in doing so. So great. It's coming. Listen to the counsel of him who has ordained you. Now that could be counsel direct from Jesus Christ. That's what this revelation is but also counsel through Joseph Smith since he's the one that's revealing this. Either way, it's words of wisdom so that salvation can come unto us. In that thing, I wish that we would pray that way more often. I'm about to do something. Help me know how salvation can come through it. In my, in my spiritual efforts, in my temporal efforts, may salvation come to those that I'm trying to help. That was their, that was their wish. In verse three, verily I say unto you, the time has come. In fact, it's now at hand and behold and lo, it must needs be that there be an organization of my people in regulating and establishing the affairs of the storehouse for the poor of my people, both in this place and in the land of Zion. I love that the Lord's house is a house of order. There needs to be an organization. It needs to to regulate things. We saw before the need to be both faithful and wise stewards. We'll see it again in this, in this section. Well, the faithfulness, we're raring to go. We're agents unto ourselves. We want to do this. Well, good. But you also need to be wise. So let's get organized. Let's have some regulation here. Let's establish the affairs of the storehouse. That way the poor will be cared for. Both temporally, Bishop's storehouse, and spiritually, literary concerns. Now verse 4 raises an interesting point. Because it's called, it says it's for a permanent and everlasting establishment and order unto my church. And what's it for? To advance the cause which ye have espoused to the salvation of man and to the glory of your Father who is in heaven. We're going to keep both great commandments in this. We're going to love God. It's for his glory. We're going to let, love our neighbor. It's for their salvation. That's the cause that we've espoused. That's the cause of Christ. And it's for a permanent and everlasting establishment. Now the irony of that phrase when it says it's a this order unto my church Originally, that was referring to this firm, this united firm. There's been some confusion because they actually changed some words in the original because they wanted to protect the, the identities of those that were involved. And, I mean, again, so much opposition that's taking place. Do we want to list everyone that has temporal responsibility for things? Because that just puts a target on their back. So let's change some of the names. We, in fact, we won't even call it a firm. That sounds a little too temporal for people that are going to be trying to destroy the church. So let's just call it an order but unfortunately, United Firm and change it to order, we start thinking, oh, United Order, that's the law of consecration. Well, yes and no. The United Order was one specific manifestation of an attempt to live the law of consecration later in the history of the church. That, that's not what's going on here. This isn't the United Order. It's the United Firm. But the Firm was called an order in the time. So sorry about the confusion. It was meant to protect <laughs> some people that needed protection. But there was still so much opposition and, and challenges to the saints then that that original united firm ultimately disbanded after several years. Its responsibilities were taken up by the, the high council. They began to take make sure that the bishop's storehouse, the temporal, the, the mercantile and literary uh, efforts of the church were, were being taken care of. So you scratch your head and go, wow, well, that united firm was not exactly permanent and everlasting. But is that what the Lord meant? Was This is where we get to the difference between principles and programs. And programs can come and go. Uh, missionary labors, for example, the principle, well, we've got to share the gospel. We are those Elias is meant to prepare and restore, right? But how do we do it? Well, there was the, the old missionary guide. Now there's preach my gospel. There was the old six discussions you memorize. Now it's it's tailor the message to the people you teach. There have been two-year missions and two-and-a-half-year missions and, and one-and-a-half-year missions. There have been 19 years old versus 18 or 21 versus 19. Oh, the, the, the programs change frequently. Look at the youth program. Look at uh, home teaching and, and, and visiting teaching versus ministering. The Lord tries all kinds of different things. And so the programs of the church are far from permanent and everlasting. But the principles that those programs are trying to espouse and trying to move forward, the, the goals that we're trying to achieve, those are permanent and everlasting. In fact, you can even take it one step further. because what are, the, what are the principles that the United Firm is trying to accomplish? We just saw one at the end of verse 3. It's for the poor of my people. We see it at the end of verse 4. It's for the salvation of man. We're trying to care for one another. Do you remember what Jesus said when when Judas was concerned that Mary had wasted all of this ointment that could have been sold to give to the poor? Jesus says, oh, the poor you always have with you. That is something, there will always be need out there. And so caring for the poor will be an ever-present possibility for you. In fact, an ever-present responsibility. Caring for others, no, there's something that's permanent and everlasting, and yet, even there, I make, it makes me pause and go, well, wait, what? even when, when everything's fulfilled, when the earth receives its paradisiacal glory, when this is, when the church of the firstborn becomes, when the kingdoms of this earth become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, really? No, by then, we've, we've pulled it off. The poor are no longer with us. The, one heart, one mind, dwelling in righteousness, and no poor among us. So even that will the poor always be with us? Well, in mortality, yes, but in eternity, no. So is it still a permanent and everlasting establishment even in in those terms? See, what I'm trying to push us on here is here's a program. Let's have Bishop Storehouses and a literary firm, a united firm to run it, to organize it, to regulate it, so on, great. Well, that's going to come and go. In fact, it's going to go faster than you realize, but the priority is, is still in place. Namely, we have to care for one another. You'll you'll try different versions of consecration throughout time. The program will change even as the priority and principle does not. But even beyond that, in terms of this celestial sphere, when there are no more poor among us, what is permanent and everlasting? The desire to serve others. The desire to bring salvation to man and glory to God the need to become selfless, and that need will will remain long after there are no more poor, intemporal things to give to. I just think it's worth pondering in all of the programs that we participate in, what are the principles and priorities that will outlive and outlast them? Focus on that. Now verse 5, here's one of those principles and priorities that you may be equal in the bonds of heavenly things. Yea, and earthly things also, for the obtaining of heavenly things. Remember, there's a difference between equality and equivalence. Your needs may be larger than others, in terms of family size or special needs or whatever it might be, but equality should be there in both heavenly and earthly things. That's what Zion, that's what consecration is meant to accomplish. And I do love what it said at the end there. That earthly things are meant for the obtaining of heavenly things. They're just means to a far greater end. Don't let them get in the way of those ends. Because that's suggested there too. That temporal inequality can impede spiritual equality. It's one of the great things about the temple. All temporal inequalities are eliminated. They're erased. And there we all are, rich and poor, haves and have-nots. You can't tell. Because we're all reduced, or in this case, exalted, to that same beautiful level of unity, of purity, of just white raiment. No differentiation on temporal things, which allows us to achieve unity in spiritual things. That's the suggestion in verse 6. For if ye are not equal in earthly things, ye cannot be equal in obtaining heavenly things. They're just connected. And what's the goal here? Verse 7, For if you will that I give unto you a place in the celestial world, you must prepare yourselves by doing the things which I have commanded you and required of you. Temporal life is meant to prove us and prepare us for celestial life. I hope we're passing our our preparation stage. Verse 8, Now verily thus saith the Lord, It is expedient that all things be done unto my glory by you who are joined together in this order. He repeats what he said back in verse 4. It's for the glory of your Father who's in heaven. This isn't about self-aggrandizement. There must be no ulterior motives here. You're going to be responsible for this, and especially for the temporal things. And as we've said so many times in the past, oh, the things you own can end up owning you. We've got to get rid of possessive pronouns. Uh, Bishop Whitney, it's about time for his store to become the store. And all of this needs to be done with an eye single to the glory of God. Now, how are we going to get there? Verse 9, or in other words, let my servant Newell K. Whitney, there's one bishop, and my servant Joseph Smith Jr., there's the president of the church, and my servant Sidney Rigdon, Joseph's right-hand man by then, let them sit in council with the saints which are in Zion. You see, those three are all still in Kirtland, Ohio. So you need to sit in council with the saints that are in Zion. They're in Missouri. We've got to get organized. We've got to regulate things. We've got to get on the same page. And that will come as we sit in council together. That's going to help uh, facilitate some of this equality in spiritual things as we're working on equality in temporal things too. Got to sit in council, Because without it, look what happens in verse 10. Otherwise, Satan seeketh to turn their hearts away from the truth, that they become blinded and understand not the things which are prepared for them. I think it's key to connect the end of 9 with what is happening in 10. If 9 is all about counseling together and then 10 is if you don't then Satan will turn your heart away, you'll become blinded, you won't understand what's going on. To me this goes back to this idea of of molten glass of taking each individual sand and fusing it all together, if we counsel together and understand one another's perspective, then and only then will we be prepared to become Zion. Otherwise, if there's disunity, if there's division or cliques or people left out, if people are are remaining on the margins, or even worse, if they are being marginalized by those in the center, then by definition, that's not Zion. We're not one heart. We're not one mind. No wonder Satan then can lead our hearts away from the truth. Do people feel included and understood and empowered? Or, or do they feel ignored? Are they voiceless? Even right now, I was in a meeting recently. The church is trying to create these, these young adult uh, committees to help the rising generation. And it's amazing the kind of disparate voices they want on these councils. They really are trying to create Zion in organizing and regulating things. They are trying to sit in council together and achieve a unity with all the grains of sand. We need people with different perspectives on things. We need male and female. We need single and married and divorced. We need heterosexual and homosexual. We need active and inactive. We need member and non-member. It's amazing what the church is trying to to bring together in these kinds of councils. They want all voices to be heard. It's an incredible example of inclusion in in sitting in these kinds of councils. So how did did they do it? Verse 11, Wherefore, a commandment I give unto you to prepare and organize yourselves by a bond or everlasting covenant that cannot be broken. Yes, the programs may change. They undoubtedly will. But the principles, the priorities, the the covenant, the bond, that's everlasting. I'm with you to the end. I promised when I was baptized, there's an everlasting covenant that binds us together. To mourn with those that mourn, to comfort those that stand in need of comfort, to sit in council together, to prepare and organize ourselves. In verse 12, he who breaketh it, shall lose his office and standing in the church and shall be delivered over to the buffetings of Satan until the day of redemption reminds me of Jonah on board that ship trying to avoid the the responsibility that he had as a chosen prophet of God i don't want to choose others to be chosen i just want to be chosen myself so that that's that's never the reason you were chosen to begin with and so broken covenant leads to lost standing leads to delivered over to the buffetings of Satan. What ultimately happens with Jonah, at his own insistence, he's cast overboard. He basically cast himself overboard, knowing it was the only way that those on board could survive. Those on board didn't want to throw him overboard. We don't want to cast anyone out of the good ship Zion. We want to sit in council with everyone. Well, verse 13, Behold, this is the preparation wherewith I prepare you and the foundation and the ensample which I have given to you, whereby you may accomplish the commandments which are given you. How do we accomplish God's commandments? Nephi knew that God would provide a way. Well, what is one of those ways? By organizing ourselves and preparing every needful thing. That's language that we'll recognize a little bit later. It's by sitting in council together. It's by covenanting to be one and seeking equality in both temporal and spiritual things. That's the foundation to build upon. That's the example to set. In verse 14, that through my providence, I'm involved, I'll consecrate, notwithstanding the tribulation which shall descend upon you. Yes, there'll be plenty of that. That the church may stand independent above all other creatures beneath the celestial world. That's such an important phrase. Independent above. I'm always amazed when When the government is giving out all kinds of money with all kinds of strings attached. And the church says, no, thanks. We don't need your money because we really don't want your strings. We want to be independent and not just independent of, but independent of above. We want to be able to help all those beneath to raise them to a higher level. I am so grateful that the church is not beholden to groups whose causes we cannot espouse. That politically, the church remains neutral, away from, from the demands of either the right or the left, as far as party platforms are concerned. That we try to be independent above those things by teaching correct principles and letting them govern themselves. That we can be independent of the world as far as as finances are concerned. The fact the church is not in debt, compare that to the national debt, in which Oh, there are strings reaching into the, the Treasury Department of the United States that does not allow us to truly be independent above those on the other end of those strings. Can we do the same thing on an individual level? Can we become independent above things that are beneath the celestial world? I do not want telestial or even terrestrial strings attached. I want to be living on that celestial level. And that brings with it a certain degree of soul, of divine independence. Independent of lesser things, because we are reliant upon God alone. In verse 15, "...that you may come up unto the crown prepared for you, and be made rulers over many kingdoms, saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Zion, who hath established the foundations of Adam on Diamond. You see how he's beginning to introduce himself? We'll see more of that in 16. But at the beginning of 15, that you can come up unto the crown. I love this this spatial dimension, the ups and downs, the independent above, the come up to the crown. The Lord is not lowering the crown to your head. He's not bringing down his divine expectation. He's trying to raise us up to his. His justice demands that the crown cannot be lowered. But his mercy and grace are such that the head that that crown is supposed to be, be upon can be raised to that level. That's what this preparation is all for. Come up to the crown. Rulers over many kingdoms, by showing that you can rule over these, these smaller temporal earthly ones. Can you handle a storehouse in, in, in Independence or in Kirtland? Can you learn to consecrate your, your small possessions and then magnify the, the temporal stewardship that you're given. Can you handle five talents or two and multiply them so that you can eventually be made rulers over many kingdoms? This is all coming from the Lord God. He is the Holy One of Zion. We often think of the Holy One of Israel. That's the normal phrase. But the Holy One of Zion? I've got my eye on it. I'm trying to prepare the people there. I'm the one who established the foundations of Adam on Diamond. We'll learn more about that in a later revelation. But that is the land where Adam and Eve dwelt post fall, when they left God's presence in Eden to begin life in a temporal sphere. That was Adam on Diamond. And they made it. What I love about it in this context is you're living in a fallen world. We saw that back in verse 14, notwithstanding the tribulation that will descend upon you. It that's what's coming down. The crown isn't coming down. I'm trying to raise you above to the crown so that you can outdistance the tribulation that's coming on down. You've got to rise above it. But as you are in this fallen world, don't worry. I established the foundations of Adam on Diamond. I've been through a fall already, and I helped Adam and Eve through it. It was through my providence. That the good ship Zion was able to rise above the floods. And the same will happen for you. In 16, he continues to introduce himself. Who hath appointed Michael, your prince. And that was Adam. So he's one who knows and experienced the fall too. But the Lord has appointed Michael, your prince. He's established his feet and set him upon high. He who fell is now established on high. He's been given the keys of salvation under the counsel and direction of the Holy One who is without beginning of days or end of life. It's beautiful that in the context of this, well, mainly temporal revelation, you're getting direction through Michael. He's mentioning Adam and I There is this sense here of a fallen world, a temporal existence. Yeah, you're not in Eden anymore. And the fruit doesn't just grow on the trees all around you. You have to plant them and hoe and, yeah, weed even. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat bread all the days of your life. But guess what? There'll be enough bread to eat. For both you and all those that you care for, if you'll follow my direction and pray for my providence, if you'll organize yourself and regulate things, if you'll sit in council together, If you'll look for ways to become one and cut the strings that bind you to lesser things, that's that's what Adam and Diamond was supposed to be. That's what Michael learned in his mortal experience as Father Adam. It's what I want all of you to learn as well. In verse 17, where do we stand in the meantime? I love these next two verses. Verily, verily I say unto you, ye are little children. You're not Michael yet. You're just Adam, fresh out of Eden, wondering what you've gotten yourselves into. Ye are little children, and ye have not as yet understood how great blessings the Father hath in his own hands and prepared for you. You don't understand it yet, but you will, if you'll remain faithful, if you'll come unto me, if you'll come to know me. You'll see that my hands are full Filled with the blessings that I desire to pour down upon you. They're already prepared. They're already in my hand. Just open your heart to me so that I can open my hands to you. Oh, little children, you have no idea. This goes back to the eye hath not seen and ear hath not heard. And it hasn't entered into the heart of man. That which I've prepared for those who love me. So love me and keep my commandments. In verse 18, ye cannot bear all things now. That's that idea of yet again. Nevertheless, be of good cheer, for I will lead you along. The kingdom is yours already. The blessings thereof are yours already. The riches of eternity are yours already. You have no idea what's yet to come, but my hands are already opened the blessings are already yours those are such beautifully reassuring verses to a group of saints that is struggling to make ends meet and meet the needs of the saints and provide for the poor and the needy and print the revelations and do everything else when when it's just hard to live up to the kinds of of divine expectations that are that are resting upon their shoulders but god's okay with that your little children You're doing the best that you can. And I'm fine with those efforts. You can't bear all things now. Neither the blessings I'm trying to give you nor the responsibility. Do You see the responsibility, that weight will begin to broaden your shoulders and strengthen your muscles. And why do you need to be so broad-shouldered and strong-muscled? Because there is an eternal weight of glory that I'm about to give you. That's some heavy lifting. And some good lifting at that. I remember years ago, speaking of people who don't like symbolism and struggle with, with symbolic scripture, or worse, struggle with a symbolic place of learning, namely the temple. My, one of my brothers-in-law, seven years younger than me in age, but oh, eons above me in terms of, of spiritual strength and goodness, he, he sent my, my, my wife and I a note when he was a newly endowed member of the church and feeling overwhelmed by this flood of knowledge that he was just scraping the surface of, And in the note, he quoted section 78, verse 17 and 18. He said, When I went into the temple, I was overwhelmed with just how much I didn't know. But I opened my scriptures and I read these verses and they comforted me. That I'm just a little child and I don't get yet just how much God wants to give me. But he will lead me along. That was, I don't know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. It's been amazing to watch this particular brother-in-law be led along by God, because he lets him. He's still one of my spiritual heroes. And one of the main reasons is because he's okay being a little child. With all of the awe and wonder of a little child, with all of the humility and meekness of a little child, with all of the glee over the good things of God that are coming to him. That's the kind of little child I want to be and that we all need to be, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Then a few more verses of, of instruction and, and reassurance. Verse 19, He who receiveth all things with thankfulness, and that's childlike too, shall be made glorious. And the things of this earth shall be added unto him, even an hundredfold, yea, more. I mean, there's my providence for you. There, there's being independent above lesser loyalties or sub-celestial strings. A hundredfold. A thousandfold. Yea, more. I, I'm a God who multiplies loaves and fishes, who provides in Adam and Iaman, who exalts Adam to Michael's status, I'll do the same for you. Just receive what I'm offering with thankfulness. Because then it doesn't go to your head. I can bless you without being so worried about what those blessings might do. I mean, I've seen the pride cycle so many times. I, I get a little gun-shy <laughs> about blessing you. But I, I can't help myself. The kingdom's yours. The blessings they're over yours. The riches of eternity are yours. I just want you to be able to bear them. And one of the best ways to do it is to accept it all with gratitude. Perhaps there's nothing that slows the pride cycle down better than gratitude. Verse 20, Wherefore. So as a result of all that I've taught you this to this point, Wherefore, do the things which I have commanded you. Saith your Redeemer, even the Son, Ammon, who prepareth all things before he taketh you. There's another hint as to his identity. Adamondi, Amen. Well, here is Son Amon, another name title for Jesus Christ, but one that links him back to this idea of a fallen and temporal world that we need to learn to live within and overcome to be able to return to live with God, our Redeemer. He's preparing all things because he wants to take us to be with him, but we need to become like him along the way. Verse 21, for ye are the church of the firstborn, celestial days ahead, and he will take you up in a cloud and appoint every man his portion, a heavenly portion, but one that you'll not be ready to receive until you've mastered the earthly portions he's trying to help you with now. Verse 22, he that is a faithful and wise steward shall inherit all things. Amen. That faithful and wise. That faithful and competent, as Elder Bednar quotes Richard L. Evans about. That's part of the organization, of regulation, of sitting in council, of becoming one. That's part of the wisdom. And it's a wisdom that we all need to develop in conjunction with our faithfulness. I guess we've got, we got two things to be working on. Well, the saints began working on just that through that united firm. The bishop, the two bishop storehouses, the, the beginning of publishing things at this literary firm in Zion. It's amazing to see that just as these, these preparatory drops in the bucket to all that the church now does worldwide with bishop storehouses and humanitarian aid and orchards and ranches and farms and, and universities and TV stations and you name it, what the church is doing across the globe is incredible. We are standing independent above. God is bringing us up to the crown that he has prepared for us. And he is showering down blessings upon us and through us upon all of his children everywhere. Now, like I said, it started small. And just like 78 is a small beginning with temporal things, well, we already saw it equality in temporal things is supposed to facilitate equality in spiritual things because that's really my ultimate goal. The big umbrella is spiritual and everything temporal beneath it is supposed to be spiritual too. And so in section 79 and 80, we're back to the spiritual side wholeheartedly, namely the preaching of the gospel. 79 and 80 are two very brief revelations uh, directed at a handful of, of members of the church that whose names we barely even recognize. Section 70 to Jared Carter, called on a mission. He'd been on one before, and just a few weeks after coming home, he reports back to Joseph Smith and says, what's next? I'm ready for my next mission call. And he gets one. And then Section 80 to Stephen Burnett and Eden Smith, they're called to go on a mission as well. In some ways, we almost feel like we're going back to those early sections of the Doctrine and Covenants of what should I do? And it's always thing of greatest worth Go cry repentance to all people. We, you see, and I'm grateful that we get reminded of that with these two very brief revelations. That it's, I think sometimes we just think, oh, this is what they, that's what they did early on. And now they're moving on to the establishment of Zion and these literary firms and, and the mercantile things in the bishop's storehouse. Now we're, we're working on the poor and needy. Well, no, we're doing it all. I mean, you look in the Church Handbook of Instructions about all the meetings that bishops or stake presidents are supposed to have. It's like, yeah, there's a lot going on. You look at a a directory in the church office building, and it's like, oh, wow, the church has its hands in all kinds of things to bless all kinds of people in all kinds of ways. So I'm glad that the Lord isn't letting them or us lose sight of the fact that, yes, even while we're doing all these other things, people are still going on missions because there are still people who have not yet heard the gospel in its fullness, and they need it. So, Jared Carter, go. Stephen Burnett, Eden Smith and where to go and what to do once they're there. That's what these revelations teach, and they're awesome. Section 79, verse 1, Verily I say unto you that it is my will that my servant Jared Carter should go again, I know you just got back, but go again into the eastern countries, from place to place and from city to city in the power of the ordination wherewith he has been ordained, proclaiming glad tidings of great joy, even the everlasting gospel to go again, to go back to where he'd been before. The mission he'd just come home from took him through Ohio and Pennsylvania and New York and Vermont, and now the Lord's saying, oh, go back, go again. Now, there could be multiple reasons for that. On the one hand, to go back again to previous fields of labor, to see the growth and change and progress that's taken place in, in the interim, Or is it to go and follow up and fix things and and reconfirm those who have struggled in their faith since the last time that you saw them? There's always reason to go again and serve in places that we've already served. To repeat callings. I laughed when I was called to my third bishopric and I thought, well, it's either third time's the charm or three strikes and I'm out. Uh, I, I hope I get it right this time if I got it wrong the previous two. Oh no, there's There's value in going again, even to identical callings, because there were things I I didn't do well the first time, and I want to do better this one. There are yet lessons to learn and people to serve. So go back and go in the power of the ordination. Remember we saw that phrase, he was called by his ordination? It's like, well, it came with it. Well, there's, what else did it come with? It came with power. It's amazing how many millions of people around the world pray for the missionaries. And to be a missionary and to step into the power of that ordination, I miss that mantle. Or people in the ward praying for their bishops. People in the stake praying for their stake presidency. There are blessings that match the mantle. And so rely on the power of that ordination. And what are you supposed to proclaim? Yes, the everlasting gospel. But how is it defined? Glad tidings of great joy which shall be unto all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. I mean, you can, there's Luke 2. There's the Christmas story. Anytime that glad tidings of great joy are mentioned, oh, we get to be the angels. We're the ones alerting fellow shepherds of where they can find the Christ child, who can then go out and tell everyone else. It is good news. What did we see among those beasts and 24 elders? Happiness. Eternal felicity? Oh, it is good news. Maybe we need to tell our face that a little more often when we're out sharing it. In verse 2, I will send upon him the Comforter, which shall teach him the truth and the way whither he shall go. You see, the irony here is section 80, Burnett and Smith are called as companions. In 79, Jared Carter isn't given a companion. Well, at least not a mortal one. In verse 2, there's the companion you should be holding on to. I will send upon him the comforter. The Holy Ghost, the Spirit, will teach you the truth. It'll show you the way you should go. When I was on my mission and serving in the office, and all the new missionaries would come each month, and there'd be this kind of preliminary training meeting at the mission home before they were sent out with their their trainers. And each month that I was able to participate in that training, I would always tell these, these greenies, fresh out of the MTC, just heads swimming, uh, what, what have I got myself into? Uh, I have no idea what I'm doing. And I would, I would invite them to lean into that. It's okay. You are little children, and the Lord will lead you along. It's okay. You'll get up to speed faster than you, than you know it. And I re- reassured them, uh, we've been praying for you. We've been praying about you. Uh, and the Lord has helped us know who your trainer should be. And they're amazing missionaries. You, elders and sisters, you are in good hands with your trainer. But that also comes with a danger. And it's that you might rely upon your trainer a little too much. I used to joke with those, those new missionaries saying, you need to make sure you stretch your neck muscles every morning because when you're out in a, you know meeting somebody or in their home, they're going to ask you a question and you're going to have no idea what the answer is. I mean, that's even assuming you understood their Spanish to begin with. You're going to be constantly going like this. And looking to the left, I mean, it's going to be this knee-jerk, uh, almost reflex of turning to your companion with this look of desperation and, and need on your, on your face of, what do I say? What did they say? What am I supposed to do? Uh, I, said, I, I used a joke. I said, you know, in fact, you're going to do this so often that you might want to switch off which side of your companion you're going to be sitting on. Because if, if they're always on your left and you're always turning to your left, sit on their left every once in a while so you can turn to the right. That way you're you're flexing both muscles, okay? And they were smiling and agreeing with me. Oh yeah, I I can see myself doing that. And then my invitation was always this. It's okay to look sideways. That's why you have a trainer. That's what your companion is for. But my invitation to you is before you turn your head sideways, turn it upward. Look up before you look over. And understand that the real trainer, the ultimate companion, will always be the Holy Ghost. And I can promise you, new missionaries, that the more often you look up, the less often you'll have to look over. You will become more and more reliant on God, and less and less reliant upon your companion. And that's a good thing. That's independent above as well. Trust in that companionship. Verse 3, he's then told, Inasmuch as he is faithful, I will crown him again with sheaves, sheaves to be brought into the garner of God, protected there in his holy house, but crowned with that, how great shall be your joy with him in the kingdom of your father, if you labor all your days in crying repentance. That's the faithfulness that's there. Then in verse 4, he concludes, Wherefore? Let your heart be glad, my servant Jared Carter. And fear not, saith your Lord, even Jesus Christ. Amen. Be glad? Of course, you're proclaiming glad tidings of great joy. And fear not? What's there to fear? I have the Comforter with me. I have the Holy Ghost. There's no room within me for fear or any lesser emotions. To me, that verse actually helps answer an interesting question for missionaries. Especially those who learn a foreign language, they're often asked, well, how long did it take for you to really understand it? And it's, for most missionaries, it's hard to pinpoint uh, a time period because it's so gradual. And what's interesting is you, you, you end up just realizing at one point, I'm, I'm thinking in Spanish. I look at, at this and I don't think book and then have to translate it into libro. I just look at it, and libro is the first word that pops into my head. Uh, it's a great feeling. It's not, oh, that's a door. Door is puerta. Oh, so that must be a puerta. You just look at it and go, that's the puerta, and that's the ventana. And so i and you're just, you're thinking in Spanish now. It is glorious when you stop having to translate for yourself. It's actually tragic when you're home long enough, and you find yourself still fluent in the language, but you're like, oh, man, I'm translating again. I'm thinking in English, and I have to then ah, take these steps to remember what the, what the words are. That, to me, is one of the glorious signs that ah, I'm, I'm not just a Spanish speaker now. I'm a Spanish thinker and a Spanish feeler. I may have cara de gringo, pero tengo lengua de, de hispano uh, It's It just becomes who you are. Well, I think the same can be said, no matter foreign language or not. When... Has the transition been complete to, that you're a missionary? Maybe put it this way. When have I gone from being on a mission to truly being a missionary? And I would suggest, based on section 79, verse 4, it comes when you are glad and no longer fear. When you love being a missionary. It's not like a chore, like you wake up with dread every morning and it's like, oh no, I have to go do this again. And it's so hard. I know it's important and I have a testimony of it and I'm converted so I I know I need to do this. But it's still this, you know, forcing yourself to go do it as opposed to waking up, yeah, you're tired. (laughs) But to have this joy and gladness of I get to do this again. And the fear is gone. It, there's not that hesitation or that self-consciousness. Just that fear of man that you started your mission with. Of, will I know the answer? Will I know what to say? What will they think of me? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm too hesitant to, to, to talk with a stranger. No. You're fearless. The, the comforter is your companion. The Lord has shaped you into a servant like him. You're feeling the weight of that mantle. The shoulders are broad. The muscles are firm. And you are serving God with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. You have become a missionary. A true disciple. It's an amazing process. Elders and sisters out there, if you haven't gotten there yet, just keep enduring. I promise it gets easier. I promise it gets better. I promise it becomes more natural the further removed you are from the natural man. Just keep looking up. Okay, Even on days you have to do a lot of looking over it's totally worth it now section 80 our last revelation for this week similar to what we saw in 79 just short sweet to the point with Stephen Burnett and Eden Smith and what are they called to do verse 1 verily thus saith the Lord unto you my servant Stephen Burnett go ye go ye into the world and preach the gospel to every creature that cometh under the sound of your voice give everyone the opportunity don't judge or dismiss them out of hand based just on outward appearances. Don't assume, oh, they wouldn't be interested. They, w- they couldn't possibly be prepared. No, preach the gospel to every creature. Verse 2, Elder Burnett is told, Inasmuch as you desire a companion, I will give unto you my servant Eden Smith. Now, for some who had really hard companions in the mission field, You're probably jealous of that verse. It was phrased like, as you desire a companion? Like, whoa, is that even an option? I'd much rather be like uh, Elder Carter and just have the Holy Ghost as my companion because, I mean, companionship inventory is really easy. Actually, it isn't. He's the one that always tells me stuff I'm doing wrong, though. But he does it really kindly. Uh, But uh, do I have to have some other mortal companion to deal with? With my weaknesses and their weaknesses? I mean, ballooning into bigger weaknesses for us both if you desire a companion? Well, actually, I would, I would push back against those natural man feelings and reassure us all that companions are desirable. Because of all they help us with, and because of all they help us to become. In fact, when he says, as you desire one, I will give unto you. Notice the Lord's language. I'm going to give unto you my servant, Eden Smith. See, there's two things there. One is the giving can you look at your companion as a gift? And is isn't just for full-time missionaries. Fellow, fellow counselors in a presidency, a companion in a ministering assignment, just someone you stand next to in a service opportunity, just anyone you're, you're with, that is a gift from God. And even the hard companions, oh, there's a gift to help rub off the rough edges on each one of us. And how does the Lord refer to Eden Smith? He doesn't call him your companion. He calls him my companion servant. Remember that. You may feel that you're the the leading actor or actress in your mission movie, but your companion is the lead in theirs, and you're just the supporting actor or actress. I didn't call them to be your companion. I called them to be my servant, and I claim them. I own them. I'm helping them to become all that I intend for them, and I'm giving them to you. What a gift to give you a fellow servant. I lift you and you lift me and, and both of us rise to the crown that God is holding out for us. Now with that companion, verse 3, go. Go on this mission. Go ye, go ye, he says twice in verse 1. And in verse 3, wherefore go ye and preach my gospel. And then the interesting part. Whether to the north or to the south, to the east or to the west, it mattereth not, for ye cannot go amiss. Can you imagine getting a mission call like that? When you open up the letter, or I guess now you open the, the email, it says, Elder so-and-so or Sister so-and-so, you are hereby called to serve as a missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. How oh, that phrase, that sentence on my mission call was life-changing. I never really been felt like Elder Halverson yet, but I did then. And then it said, you are assigned to labor in the, and that's the drum roll, and everyone's wondering. For me, it said the Puerto Rico-San Juan mission. And it it came with a flood of confirming spirit that, yes, I know you've never heard of that place, but that is where I am calling you. But can you imagine opening, and it says, you are are assigned to labor in the North-South-East-West mission? And you're like, where is that? And then it says, it mattereth not, you cannot go amiss. Wait, I got called to the Mattereth not mission? Where is that? And instead of showing you the little mission map of this is the outline of your country, it's not just planet Earth with little compass directions. North, south, east, west. Go anywhere. You see back, I think it was in Vietnam, uh, there was a Marine brigade that was surrounded by the enemy. And their intrepid leader said, to kind of rally the troops, said, boys... The en- we are surrounded, which means we have the enemy right where we want them. And they're like, huh? I think you got that reversed. And he said, no, the enemy has surrounded us, which means we can fight in any direction. Go to it. Well, if we are surrounded by opportunities to serve and to bless, then it really doesn't matter where we go, because north, south, east, west, we can serve in any direction. I remember feeling that when I, when I told Church Education, I'm ready to head out wherever you want to send me. to Go coordinate a seminary institute program somewhere in the, in the country. And I was nervous about places to go. And I had some, some hopes and, and places that are on my list of, of places to go. But when this verse finally settled into my soul, this idea anyway, this principle, that north, south, east, or west, there will be students to teach. There will be people to bless. And once that dawned on me, send me wherever. And I'm so glad when the Lord said, Oh, I've got a spot. It's not on your list. It's on mine. But my list is better than yours. My ways and thoughts are higher than your ways and thoughts. So go to Nashville. I'm like, huh? And once I was there, actually, even before I got there, I knew that's where the Lord needed me. It's a beautiful thing to watch in young missionaries. The transition from, I really hope I go to wherever. To a north, south, east, west approach of Heavenly Father, here am I, send me, and send me anywhere. And why am I so open to your direction? Because I trust you. I remember the great talk from Elder Rasband about mission calls, and that there is a, and Elder, I believe Elder Bednar gave a talk about this as well, that there's a difference between the calling to go preach the gospel and the assignment to a specific field of labor. The assignment can change. The calling has not. It's like what we talked about earlier the difference between programs and principles and priorities. Well, places can be like programs, they can be changed. North, south, east, west, it mattereth not. Because you can't go amiss if you're holding to the principles and the priorities. And what are they? Verse 4 to declare the things of God, to declare what you've heard and verily believe. And know to be true. I love that the the three things listed go in that order because it's almost a crescendo of conversion. Often when we when we start, we're just declaring the things we've heard. I don't totally know all this for myself, but I've had enough spiritual experience to know that God wants me to go out and and share His His message. So here are the things I've heard. But the more we do that, the more we come to understand truth. They become the things that we verily believe. Well, continue down that path. See the fruits in people's lives, and by their fruits ye shall not just believe, ye shall know them, and now you know it to be true. I love that evolution from heard to believe to know. And then finally, verse 5 Behold, this is the will of him who hath called you. And who's that? Your Redeemer, even Jesus Christ. Amen. I hope that you've felt his voice behind the revelations that we've studied today to get a sense that it's our Redeemer because we needed redemption. What he's done for us, he wants to do for others. And if I, it's like Alma, when I see what God has done for others, it reminds me of what he's done for me. If we can move forward in our service to other people with that thought in mind, with, the, with our redemption, and more importantly, our Redeemer, he's the one that is trying to lift us and others to the crown that he has placed before us. So that ultimately, what can we do with that crown? We can cast it at his feet, as we learn from Revelation chapter 4, that we can honor and adore and emulate Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of all of these missions spiritual and temporal. So go ye, go ye, to the north or the south or the east or the west. Ye cannot go amiss if you are coming unto Christ.